Look with me. If you've got your copy of Scripture with you, I want to invite your attention to John chapter 20. We're going to start with a very traditional Easter story, but we're not going to stay there long. But I want us to start there because there is a part of this story that I usually overlook. And it was just like this year, it was glaring. It's just like God said, why haven't you paid attention to this before? And I want to show it to you. So look with me in John chapter 20. And what we're going to look at today is how the resurrection changes everything. Next Sunday, we're going to, we're going to ask the question, why? And it's going to be a very unique worship time. I hope that some of you will help me prepare for it. But it's going to be a very unique worship time. We're going to sing a song and then we're going to stop and we're going to ask, why do we sing the way we sing? And then we're going to do the next element of worship and we're going to stop. And we're going to say, why do we do things the way we do them? Then we'll, do the, we'll go to the next one. And, and each time along the way throughout the service, we're going to pause and talk about why we do the things we do. I believe it's important for us to understand why we do the things we do. Otherwise, we're just kind of going through the motions and we're just kind of being obedient, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. So we want worship to be meaningful. Therefore, next Sunday, we're going to ask the big question, why? Well, if next Sunday asks the question, why? This Sunday, we could say, asks the question, so what? We could ask the question, so what? Jesus died for us on a cross. That proved he loved us. He came back to life. That's cool, but so what? That was a long time ago. That was was 2,000 years ago. So what? Well, I want to show you this morning the so what. I want to show you how the resurrection changes everything. All right? Let's start with the traditional story. John chapter 20, and let's pick it up at verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus was lying, had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. See, when she saw the empty tomb, her first reaction was not glory. Her first reaction was not hallelujah, he's risen. Her reaction was, what happened? Somebody did something wrong to his body. They they took his body. Who's been here? The words that, she had, that, that Jesus had spoken to the disciples, including some of the women, including Mary Magdalene, did not come to her mind. He had told them ahead of time that He was going to die and that He was going to come back to life. But those are not the words that came to mind. In her panic, in her grief, in her fear, all she knew was that something was wrong. The tomb was empty. Jesus wasn't there. She didn't know what to do. 
The angels in verse 13 speak to her. They said, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord. I don't know, I don't know where they've laid him. You can almost hear the grief and the sorrow and the confusion. Verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And don't, don't get hung up on that, and we're not going to take a whole lot of time with that today. She's crying, tears can't, you can't see too good, it's also still dark, the sun hasn't risen, it's, and she's in, in grief, you don't think straight when you're in grief. She had settled the fact that he was dead, so it would take a, take a major shock for her to understand that he's alive. Besides that, he may not appear exactly like he did. Remember, he walked with the two disciples down the road, uh, uh, down the Emmaus Road. After the resurrection, he walked with them, and they didn't recognize him either. Why? Because I think he, re he, he concealed his identity. Many reasons. Don't get hung up on the fact she didn't recognize him right away, because the, the, the powerful thing is about to happen. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbanai. Now later, I don't know if it was in place yet, but later the, the, the Jewish people had three levels of teachers, if you will, three names. There was Rab, who was the lowest level, the most elementary level of teacher. And then there was Rabbi, the most common uh, uh, level of teacher, higher than a Rab, and then the top teacher was Rabbanai. And that's the name that she uses for him. But notice that she recognizes him not by seeing him, but when she hears his voice. Remember Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd and I call my sheep by name and they know me. Here he says, Mary. And she remembered how she had met Jesus sometime earlier. Mary remembered how her life had been anything but holy. Her, her life was not, was not at all what it could have been, should have been. And yet Jesus took her in and loved her. Showed her grace. Mary, Mary Magdalene wound up following Jesus closer than even some of his own 12 disciples. She was there with him, loved him more than she loved herself. And so it is when Jesus calls her name that the relationship clicks back into, into her mind. It clicks back into her experience. That's Jesus. And apparently, although it doesn't spell it out, apparently she fell on him, hugging him, perhaps back at his feet where she had once been before. She cries out, Rabbani. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, as a young person, I remember being very confused. She's hugging him. Why is he telling her to stop? It's a good thing. And you know what I think I have figured out over the years? I think I have figured out over the years, 
He says, stop clinging to me because I've not yet ascended. What that means is, I'm going to ascend soon, but I'm not gone yet. I'm still here, so stop holding on to me like you think I'm going to disappear again. I'm here for 40 more days. We've got time. So you don't have to panic and hold on to me like I'm going to disappear. I've not ascended yet. I'm here with you, Mary. And now look, this is where it really gets fun. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to the Father, to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and that he had had said these things to her. Notice how the resurrection changes everything. Did you notice what Jesus called the disciples? He said, go back and tell my brothers. First time he ever called them brothers. He had called them servants. He had even called them friends. But he had never called them brothers. Why? Because they had never been part of the family. You see, it's because Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And once He came back to life to claim victory over death, hell, and sin, now those who follow Him are adopted into His family, thereby becoming brothers. How come I haven't seen this before? Not tell the disciples I'm alive. Not go tell my friends, you tell my brothers. And then did you notice what he said? I ascend to my father and your father. You've been adopted into the family. That's powerful stuff. When she got to go find the disciples, she got to tell them, hey guys, we're part of the family. He called us brothers and sisters and, and he said he's, that his father is now our father. The resurrection changes everything. Now let me ask you this. How come Mary had to go to the disciples? Where were they? You know where they were? Hiding. They were behind closed windows and locked doors, hiding in fear. There were 11 grown men, scared to walk outside, scared that someone might find them, see them, connect them to Jesus. And so they are hiding in fear. And look at the last, the the next two verses, 19 and 20. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, that word shut means locked, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They were in fear, now they're in joy. They were 
hiding, now they're rejoicing. Why? Because the resurrection changes everything. Their whole outlook on life has changed. Why? Because they've seen the risen Lord. They knew He died. They knew He loved them. They knew that He had done all that He said He was going to do for them. They also knew that His body had been put in that buried grave and they thought the story was over. But now, Everything's changed. Here is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection has changed a group of, of fearful, scared, hiding men into a group that is basically the rejoicing baby church ready to be born. The resurrection changes everything. Let me show you just a few things that get changed in our lives by the resurrection. First, I don't have to live in guilt or shame anymore. I don't have to live in guilt or shame anymore. Why? Because Jesus took care of my guilt. You remember Scripture says, that He became our sin, that we might have His righteousness. He became our sin, paid our debt. We're no longer guilty. We have His righteousness when we receive Him and, and accept that gift from Him. I don't have to live in guilt or shame anymore. Here are these 11 hiding behind locked doors. And in verse 21, says, Jesus says to them, Peace be with you. As your Father has sent me, I also send you. You see the difference? The change? Here were 11 hiding inside closed doors, closed windows. And now Jesus says, peace, man, and I'm going to send you out. And those 11, now sent out by Jesus Christ, begin to change the world. And within 300 short years, Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. They went from a time in which they would have been killed and had such an impact with such power and courage that they literally changed that known world. And Christianity becomes not just a handful of guys hiding in fear. It becomes the official religion of the greatest power of the world. When Jesus died, there were many people who followed Him. But there were about 120 real disciples, learners, followers, real disciples. There were about 120 in a group. As you know, then there were the 12 and then there were three that were even closer and all that. But when Jesus died, there were around 120 real dedicated believers. Today, 
2.3 billion. From 120 to 2.3 billion. One in every three people alive on the world today claims Christianity. A third of the world's population. How does that happen from 11 guys hiding in fear in a room to one third of the world's population? The resurrection changes everything. I don't have to live in guilt or shame anymore. In Romans chapter 4, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our our justification. You see, both were involved in what we call salvation. He died on the cross, yes, to pay for our sins, yes. But the process wasn't complete until He came back to life demonstrating that He indeed now had power over life and death and heaven and hell and sin and justification. And so when He comes back to life... We now are justified. That word means basically we are made right. No longer do I have to live in guilt and shame. I have been made right by Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. I don't have to live in guilt or shame anymore. The second thing I want you to notice is I don't have to fear death. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I do not have to fear death. You remember one time Jesus had a very close friend. His name was Lazarus. Lazarus died. Jesus got to the place where the family was mourning the death of his good friend Lazarus. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. When Jesus arrived, Lazarus had been dead, and so he meets with Mary and Martha. And in John chapter 11, beginning at verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. She had just said, you know, I know that Lazarus will come back to life in the resurrection one of these days. I know there will be an event one of these days, the resurrection, Lazarus will come back and we'll all be together. And she said, I know that. And he said, no, you don't get it. I'm not talking about a date on the calendar. I'm talking about me. Jesus says, I'm not talking about an event. I'm talking about a Savior, a Lord. I'm talking about me. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. And the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Say that, will never die. When we believe in him, we never die. Why? Because the resurrection changes everything. It changes my eternity. It changes my life. It takes me from one who is bound to death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. It takes me from one who is bound to death and it changes me into one who lives forever. We never die once we really believe in the one who beat death. Resurrection changes everything. Why were those first Disciples changed so dramatically. Why do they go from from a handful of scared guys to the group that changes the world? How does that happen? It's because they had seen it with their own eyes. 
They witnessed it firsthand. These guys saw Jesus dead. And then they saw Jesus alive. In 2 Peter chapter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw it. You know, most of the stuff that we find out about, we find out about secondhand, thirdhand, fourthhand. People call me all the time upset because they've heard about this or that. I say, where'd you get the information? Well, I saw on Facebook that so-and-so's best friend's brother's cousin's uh, dog sitter told them what they had seen. Guys, come on. That's not what you base truth on. What you base truth on is firsthand information. Peter, when he wrote his book, when he wrote one of his letters, he says, guys, this is first-hand information. I saw him alive. That's how Peter was changed so dramatically from the one who denied, I don't know Jesus, and the cock crows. You remember the story? I don't know him. And he remembers the words of Jesus who, when Jesus said, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. He goes from that to this. We did not follow cleverly devised stories, but we saw Him. And because of that, these guys had seen the real deal. They were even willing to die for it. Acts chapter 1, after His suffering, He presented Himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that He was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God and they walked with Him and they talked with Him and they learned from Him and they were empowered by Him. And because of that, they knew that if they spoke His name, they could be put to death and they did it anyway. Because they're not afraid to die. Because they know what they're saying is true. And they know that He will see them through. You see, I don't have to fear death. These guys knew their sins were forgiven and they knew they didn't have to fear death and neither do we. We don't have to be afraid to die. Because we know as believers in Jesus Christ, believers in the risen Lord, we know that if we've experienced Him firsthand, not grandma's religion, not going to church because mama says I have to. But when I've experienced him firsthand, firsthand experience, then I know I don't ever have to worry or be afraid of death because I'm always going to be with him forever. The third thing that we, that, that, that we understand as, as uh, the resurrection changes everything, the third thing that we see happening in our lives is I get God's Spirit in me. I get God's Spirit in me. In the upper room, before Jesus dies, in the upper room, Jesus has a very long conversation with the disciples. It takes John four chapters to record that long conversation. 
And in that conversation, He promised them that He would send the Holy Spirit as soon as He returned to the Father. Matter of fact, He said, I have to return to my Father in order that I can send to you the Holy Spirit. That was the promise. I am going to die on the cross. I'm going to come back to life. And then I'm going to go up to the Father. And when I go up to the Father, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And then He told them, you guys don't do a thing until the Holy Spirit gets here. He said, you guys hang out right here in Jerusalem. Don't go nowhere. Don't try to do nothing. He used the double negative, I promise you. You stay right here. And don't try to do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. Why? Because the work they had to do could not be done in their own power. The work they had to do could not be done in their own power. It it is dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And the same thing is true today for all true believers. We cannot live the life God intends us to live. We cannot serve Him fully. We cannot accomplish all that He has planned for us to accomplish on our own power. Therefore, He said to these guys, you wait for the Holy Spirit to get there. And then He will empower you to do all that you need to do. In Acts chapter 1, He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be able to change the city of West. And then you'll be able to change all of Central Texas. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be able to change the whole state of Texas and then the whole United States. You say, John, you're just, talking, you're just talking big. We're a small church, small town. There's more of us in this room than there was in that room. You're still thinking it's dependent upon us. And it's not. Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. It's amazing. Let me show you this. If you have your copy of Scripture, look in Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 18. Ephesians chapter 1 at verse 18. Look at this prayer. I pray. This is Paul's prayer for the church. And it is our prayer for our church today. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places. What does that mean? Very simply this. I pray that you'll be able to recognize three things. The hope of His calling, that because He's called you to be one of His, you have great hope in life. The riches of His glory and the inheritance in His saints. Imagine what we get on the other side of this life. 
We can't even begin to fathom. And then the third thing, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. And then he tells us how we can understand that power. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might with which he raised, uh, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him in the high places. In other words, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead can be active in our lives today because that power is the power of the Holy Spirit of God. When we trust in Jesus Christ, He sends His Spirit within us and we have the power of God Almighty working in our lives. You see, the resurrection changes everything. One other way it changes things is I can live with purpose and meaning. I can live with purpose and meaning. Had he died and been buried and that was all there was to it, then we couldn't trust anything he said. Because he said he was coming back. So if he didn't, then everything he said was, 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 couldn't be trusted. The resurrection proved he was who he said he was and that he did what he came to do. What did he come to do? John 10, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. You see, he came to give us meaning and purpose. Now that he has resurrected from the dead, we can know him personally, experience him in our lives, and find that abundant life. I can live with purpose and meaning. Bill Gaither said, life is worth the living just because, why? He lives. That's all I need to know. And then finally, and we're done, I can be certain that I'm going to heaven. I can be certain that I'm going to heaven. Because of the resurrection, it changes everything. One of the ways it changes me is I can be certain I'm going to heaven. The first century Christians were fearless. They had a contagious faith because they knew that they were going to heaven when they died. They knew their future was secure. In the first century, they knew that to follow Christ was to put their own lives in danger, but they did it anyway because they knew that even if they died, they were going to go to heaven. First Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You see, because of the resurrection, we know that there is a place for us in heaven. Our reservations have been made. The reservation is in heaven for you. Now notice you're not carrying that reservation around with you. It's not a ticket to get in. You can't be responsible for it. If you were responsible for it, you'd lose it. Right? This is exactly what we mean when we say, if you're really saved, you are really saved forever. If you have really trusted in Christ, then your reservation is being held in heaven. It's in His hands, not your hands. If you could earn your way into heaven, then you can also work your way back out. If you can be good enough to get in, then tomorrow, one mistake, you're bad enough to get kicked out. 
So it has nothing to do with how good you are. It has nothing to do with how nice you are. It even has nothing to do with what you say or what church you join. It has everything to do with the grace that Jesus gives us. Because He died, He now calls us to Himself, and He says, now you're mine. And because it's based on what He did, then I can trust that my salvation is secure. If I trust in Him, I know my reservation is in heaven. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Not, you might be, you have a chance to be, you will be saved. What does it take? You confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life. Lord means master. From this day on, Jesus is the master of my life. And within your heart, you believe that He died for you and came back to life for you. You believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So let me ask you this morning. Have you called Him Lord and meant it? And within your heart, do you know He died for you and He came back to life for you? Do you know there's a place in heaven for you? Are you sure? If you died this afternoon and, Jesus, and God looked at you and said, you're not perfect, why should I let you in my perfect heaven? What would be your answer? Because mama took me to church? Because I try not to cuss too much? Or would your answer be, because I know Jesus as my Lord, and I know in my heart that he died and came back to life for me? Because that's the only way you're going to make it.